Welcome to the New York City Bar Association podcast. Opinions expressed are those of the speakers and not necessarily of the city bar. Hello, everyone. My name is Lorraine McGowan, and I'm delighted to be the moderator for this podcast. I'm a partner at Orrick Harrington and Sutcliffe and a co-chair of the New York City Bar Association's Task Force on Digital Technologies. And on behalf of myself and my co-chairs, Ed So and Jerome Walker, I am delighted to welcome everyone to our podcast, Introducing the Task Force's Electronic Mobility Services Subcommittee. Before we begin our discussion, I would like to briefly introduce our esteemed panelists who are co-chairs of the Mobility Subcommittee. They are each subject matter experts and bring different perspectives and experiences on the issues on emerging transportation and other mobility services. Um, Now, they are speaking on their own behalf and not on behalf of their institutions Uh, or firms, and so we want to make that point clear as well. And we recognize that technology is rapidly changing, and our panelists uh, will help us address what do we mean by electronic mobility services? What are the issues that the subcommittee will focus on initially, and how can you become involved? In the interest of time, I'm only going to briefly introduce our panelists. A more detailed bio is available on the task force dashboard, which is available on the City Bar's website. So first, Matthew Douse is a partner at Window Marks Lane and Mittendorf, where he founded and chairs the firm's transportation practice group. And before that, He was one of the longest-serving commissioners, chairs, and CEOs of the New York City Taxi and Limousine Commission. And also with us is Margaret Barry, who is an environmental law writer at the Sabin Center for Climate Change Law, where she maintains the Climate Change Litigation Database. And Elizabeth Stein recently joined the Institute for Policy Integrity as the state policy director, where she focuses on utility regulation and environmental and energy policy. And before that, Liz was lead counsel, energy transition at the Environmental Defense Fund, where she led, among other issues, EDF State Utility Commission advocacy in support of widespread electrification of trucks and buses. Now, before we turn to our panelists, because we have a very promising dis- discussion on these hot topics, I'd like to, le- like to briefly describe our Digital Technologies Task Force, which some of you may be familiar with. Our task force is composed of more than 100 representatives of 47 committees of the city bar, and our primary mission is to be a center of excellence and thought leadership on all areas of digital technologies. We provide articles and reports and host seminars and webinars, and we record a number of podcasts, including this podcast introducing uh, our Electronic Mobility Services Subcommittee. We have a number of programs 
already planned for the coming months, and I invite you to register for these events on the City Bar's website, including three that we've already have listed. On March 21st, we have a webinar on how the UCC affects small business transactions. And on June 10th and 17th, a two-part comprehensive symposium on digital technologies. So let's get started. This is going to be fun. First, let's talk about what we mean by emerging transportation technologies. What are some of the emerging technologies that our listeners should be aware of in the mobility area? Let's start with you, Matt. Sure. Thanks, Lorraine. And it's great to be here with uh, Liz and Margaret. This is going to be a great discussion. One of the things that we start talking about is how mobility has changed with technology over the years. I mean, it's almost as if Uber, the Uberization of mobility is old hat, right? It seems like decades ago that we put those television screens and GPS in the taxi cabs. Now, I think the big things that we're looking at, and I think you could say that automated vehicles, driverless cars have already emerged. We've seen them, they're out there. They're still sort of getting our head above water and emerging further, but the use case is there. The testing is happening all over the place from Arizona to, to California and, and uh, also New York, potentially, uh, upstate Buffalo and possibly in New York City. Uh, also, we have flying taxis, right? So people talk about urban air mobility, advanced air mobility. That's still emerging. There's some pilots going on around the world, but it's real. And it's maybe happening at the Manhattan downtown Hel heliport as well. There's still a framework and there's still some issues there, but really it's what we call EVTOLs, electric vertical takeoff and landing uh, vehicles, which have multiple rotors. They, they take off straight like a helicopter, but they're noiseless, which hopefully solves some of the community board complaints. We also have something known as mobility as a service, which is in Helsinki, Finland, in uh, Vienna, and it's being tested in various forms in Pittsburgh, but not completely. It's basically the concept of putting all of your modal choices on one app with one credit card option. So you could click a button, say, I want to go to work today. It'll give you the most eco-friendly way to get there, the cheapest way, the fastest way to get there. You click a button and with one payment system, you're able to be told, take a walk for one block, take a bike to the subway, take a subway to your destination and hop in an Uber or a taxi and it'll be linked. Also, AI is kind of, artificial intelligence is kind of, it, it's still an emerging technology, but it's everywhere. It's in the driverless. It's in optimization for software, right? And automating enforcement is like the last thing I'll mention. That is a big one. We see the red light for speed cameras. Um, I think we are going to see, especially in major cities like New York and Miami uh, and elsewhere in California, more and more of that. I'll never forget Lorraine when I, I rented a car in Dubai and I was basically driving. I think I was going one mile over the speed limit to Abu Dhabi and I got, I don't know, when I came back and returned the car, I was told I better pay the 20 fines that I got for speeding without a cop ever pulling me over. So there's actually AI software cameras out there that can uh, actually do parking enforcement and send you summonses in the mail. It could actually read uh, what type of car it is, sync it with the DMV and registration. So those are some of the things that are on the horizon. And there's a plethora of legal issues. We're just scratching the surface. And I didn't mention EVs because I know Margaret and Liz have plenty to say about that. All right. So, Margaret, let's talk about EVs. As Matt mentioned, we are looking at in the next few years a huge expansion of the number 
of electric vehicles on our roadways. And I think the build out of the charging networks in the city and in New York State um, represents a big challenge for the city and the state going forward. And there are a lot of technologies that are part of this. And Elizabeth will be able to say a lot more about this, I think, as well. But you have the payment systems. How are people going to be able to pay for them? Do they have to have a certain app? Can they just use their credit card? There are also just the communication systems, like being able for the computer that is the charger to communicate with the computer that is the car and the communication that is needed for that to happen. And then also you have to be able to ensure the sort of reliability of the charging chargers. And so there's going to be a need for a remote monitoring of the charging networks to make sure that, that when problems are happening, they're detected and that is conveyed, that information is conveyed to some entity that can take care of the problem either remotely or by sending out a human being to repair it. Yeah. I look forward to talking with you about that because there have been some articles recently about some experiences that people have been having in this cold weather. But before we do that, Liz, are there other areas or products that we should be aware of? And I also, given your experiences with electric trucks and buses, if you could talk about that too. Sure. So just to add on to what Matt and Margaret have already mentioned, the electric vehicles are, as, as Margaret, I think, especially alluded to, they're computers on wheels. And they're going to be plugging in. They are already, and they will even more be plugging into the grid at all kinds of locations where we are not accustomed to having that kind of load. And in particular, they are computers on wheels with battery. So in a time when the electric system is, we all know, in need of significant new storage to support all the other changes that are happening to the electric vehicles of all sizes have some possibility of being part of the solution, even though for the time being, they're often framed as more of a challenge than anything else, because they do need that charging infrastructure. But once they're in place, the manner in which they charge actually may be really complementary to a lot of the other challenges that are happening on the grid. And coming up with the business model, the price signals, and the program that allow them to actually be response to the needs of the system um, is going to be a challenge going forward. On the ground, there is, as Margaret was alluding to, the need of the infrastructure build down, which in the case of buses and trucks implicates all kinds of issues with who owns vehicles, who owns the locations where they charge, which may or may not be the same entity that owns the vehicle, whether they tend to currently share infrastructure with other entities or whether they are accustomed to and need to keep their equipment isolated where only they work with it. This is really fun. So for those of in the audience that are my generation, the electronic transportation seems to me to be bringing cartoons that I watched as a kid come to life. Uh, putting this more specifically, it's like watching the Jetsons come to fruition, right? So Matt, 
Let's talk about some of the legal issues and policies. And we don't have to start with the flying taxis, but flying taxis are the thing that most brings to mind the Jetsons to me. Yeah. And I was a big fan of the Jetsons. I think I'm from your generation. I used to enjoy it. And let, we'll can start with that. It's There's a lot of issues here. I mean, first of all, with the exception in a very bipartisan way, I mean, it's hard to get people in Congress to agree on anything these days, but there's two areas that I think talking about real emerging technologies that they probably agree on, Republicans, Democrats, and progressives, is that, you know, UFOs and flying taxis, right? I hate to say it, but that will bring our country together. The flying taxi thing has bipartisan support. And the problem is we don't have enough funding for it yet. There's heavy subsidies going to airports. The infrastructure bill had some potential lines that could develop, developing these heliports that could be converted to vertiports because it's pretty much the same thing, except you do need to have the electric infrastructure. And some cities and states are doing it. New York City is looking to do it. They have the small business BS and EDC put out a bid, which is due on February 2nd to take the downtown Manhattan heliport, convert it into a, a vertiport where autonomous flying electric vehicles could take off. And also there's a micro mobility hub where they're going to be taking marine and package delivery that comes in. So it may start off with south sightseeing tours, but I worked with NASA uh, actually on a use case many years ago. And a lot of the reports that have been published show that the use cases really initially for emergency vehicles and trips to and from airports. But there's a lot that goes into it legally. Before we start seeing, I, I think it's going to start at where the heliports are, where they first exist. But I think once you start migrating to the top of, the, of, of buildings, that's when it gets more complicated. There's local zoning laws, there's overlap of authority between FAA. And, and I think some of the legal issues are the industry trying to jump ahead <laughs> to go on a, 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 a piloted vehicle. Like all the talk that you see from all these companies that are looking to do these projects, it's all about, oh, we just want it to be driverless. I think it's jumping a little bit further ahead than what we're all, I mean, we all know that planes can fly themselves, right? But getting the pilots to come out and just have flight attendants is something that probably is not gonna happen anytime soon, right? So. I think there's a plethora of legal issues there and the typical issues. And on, on AVs, we're seeing some of this stuff play out right now. So you could spend a whole bunch of time talking about that, but there's crashes, there's liability issues. There's, we've seen Tesla be successful in lawsuits that were brought against them, where we have this, the existing paradigm creates a scenario where people can get off the hook on a product's liability side, because it's going to be very hard to prove that the software was defective. So you have the whole causality issue as well. And that's exactly what happened in the Tesla case where they were sued. And the Tempe, Arizona uh, crash is a perfect example with Uber of how the order of things affected on the existing paradigm, uh, a result which some contend is not a good result, right? right? Uber went to the scene, settled the case immediately. Later on, NTSB came out with a report which would have affected the litigations that were brought. And that report actually said that Uber and the, the Chester and the driver in the car were both responsible. So that could have affected the civil lawsuits that came later. Ultimately, that we could talk about that forever. But I think the big issue with the AV companies now is they realize that what we call the handoff is a tremendous liability for them when they're testing driverless cars. If you have somebody in there, if they miss that split second where they're supposed to go from self-driving mode to take control over the vehicle, 
that creates liability. And that is really what happened in, in Tempe and a couple of other crashes. So now the companies have taken people out of the vehicle. So in, in California, there's somebody who's watching you in a camera and watching the vehicle, and that's how they do it. So those are so, some of these legal issues are going to play out. And I, I do think that there, a new paradigm is needed because another way for these companies to get off the hook is to the standard of care for street infrastructure is based upon standards in the 70s that were put out there. So if a, a, a traffic signal or a location is not able to be identified by the AI and the LIDAR in the driverless car, they could fall back on the fact, well, there's no new standards for automated roadways being built. So they rely on the old standards. And that's how um, I think if that case would have proceeded, the civil lawsuits that were dismissed for other reasons in Arizona, if we would have proceeded down that road, there could have been real liability for Uber. The work is ahead of us on, on, on these fronts, on the legal side and on the policy side as well, putting together regs in a framework that makes sense. Yeah. It's evolved. Thanks, Matt. And I understand that New York and New York State and New York City are exploring the expansion of AVs for us in our state and locally. And Margaret, there are lots of other issues related to that and the infrastructure around that. What are some of the policy and uh, legal challenges that you're aware of in this space? Specific to autonomous vehicles, I think some of the issues, like I, as you mentioned at the outset, I'm an environmental lawyer by training, that those issues I think have not been looked at really closely that I'm aware of. But I do know that in the scoping plan for the state's major climate law that was enacted in 2019, which is the Climate Leadership and Community Protection Act, the scoping plan does briefly mention autonomous vehicles and more as like as some things that need to be kept in mind as autonomous vehicles become a bigger presence potentially in the state. And one is that we're thinking carefully about their energy use. And as we're moving towards electrification of vehicles in general, that we from the outset have parameters requiring that AVs also be electric vehicles when they're used as for hire vehicles, or at least be zero emission vehicles. And then also policies that discourage um, empty AV miles, which is when the AV is traveling without passengers. So that's, those are two concerns that I um, have seen mentioned by the in the state planning documents under its major climate law. And Liz, yeah, you've mentioned some of the challenges with respect to the grid. Are we ready? Yes. So, it depends what you mean by ready. I, uh, the state, the location, the state of California is the place where we kept, where we see the most electric vehicle adoption. And the model that has been their primary way of charging for most of the time that that been growing there has been been cars parked in garages where people plug in their vehicle overnight at their home. And that use case has come very well understood. How people can manage their impact on the grid is increasingly well understood, et cetera. Other use cases, whether it is apartment dwellers, especially apartment dwellers in a place like New York City where Apartment buildings don't mostly have their own dedicated parking lot. And fleet vehicles, and in particular, 
large fleets of large vehicle as well as large fleets of small vehicle. Those kinds of use cases are still emerging and getting the grid ready for them represents really special challenges. Particular in the case medium and heavy duty vehicle, any one medium or heavy duty vehicle, when it is charging, can, if it's charging at its sort of full speed, can be a really significant load all by itself, like comparable to the decent sized commercial building. And so a fleet of very large vehicles charging or a highway stop where a whole bunch of large vehicles are charging and they might be charging in a hurry because they want to get back on the road. Those are tremendous grid challenges and tremendous challenges to get ahead of them. And that's something that um, so far hasn't really been. But I also want us to mention an autonomous use case that didn't come up um, earlier, which is autonomous trucks on highways. Um, Because those can operate as as caravans, basically, where you have a driver in a vehicle who's actually driving an operating vehicle, and then one or more additional trucks that are automatically following. And my understanding is that's a very attractive model in certain respects. However, since, since we're talking about legal issues, right, you know, it, it has both advantages and disadvantages when it comes to the, the labor and the other aspect of operating. Just want to make sure that's part of it. I could just imagine that on the New Jersey Turnpike. Uh, um, <laughs> it is. Well, um, <laughs> oh, wow. The platooning, I think, I agree with you, Liz, it makes a lot of sense. And from an infrastructure standpoint, it seems a lot easier than navigating the streets of Manhattan with autonomous vehicles. Uh, so they may end up, I think, some of the use cases are that they'll go off the highway and go to a mo- mobility hub. But I'm glad you and Margaret mentioned the EV infrastructure. And uh, I'm ready to say that I don't think we're ready to meet the goals from a planning and a perspective. We're seeing some of those issues now. I think Everybody's very optimistic about it. And I think the good news is that the automated vehicle industry, if we're talking about driver car, driverless cars and EVs, they're all committed to EVs. So that's really not the issue. I think the issue is as we roll out the infrastructure is having a cohesive plan. I think it was great that USDOT and the president and Congress rolled out the infrastructure money for these grants. The problem is, and I, I worked on a project at my CERTA as well for a legislative report that. I believe it may be out by now, but it, it talks about what we need to do to plan the infrastructure. My concern is that aside from the liability issues that come from fires and, and stuff like that, which is a very important issue, not with the vehicles, but more for the micromobility, the scooters and the bikes, which is part of this. Like a lot of parking garages around Manhattan are, they're all looking to make additional revenue from having the chargers in there for cars, vehicles, bikes, and also scooters. And I think you're going to see more of that on the street as these things roll out. But Long story short, on, on EVs, it's a chicken and egg thing. And if you want consumers to have confidence to buy the vehicles, which are more expensive, and for fleets to turn over to them, the government really needs to take a leadership role. And rather than just putting out grants to the world and whoever has a great parking lot or a property can apply and get them and it, on the NEVI funding formulas, that doesn't mean that we're going to have a, a robust network that's connected. I think we need to look at the data and see where the vehicles are going, which is kind of what California's car board is doing along with the PUC. Um, they're actually looking at where the ride-hail drivers go. Where can we, from an equity standpoint, put these charging stations and spend the money wisely? That's not happening now. And that's my biggest concern that, I don't say it's going to kill the movement, but it's going to slow it down. 
if we're looking to get people and all the manufacturers are committed to putting uh, plug-in vehicles out there, but really for the fleets to turn over, whether it's trucking or personal use, we really need to get this right. And I think the mayor in New York and, and is working very closely with city-owned properties and they're trying to put together a plan, but Revel, who was doing a great thing, right? But, but that we can't just have a Revel having all of the charging stations. You need some spaced out for not just the right hill in the street, but for utilities and trucking. And whether the grid can handle that is another issue. And Margaret and Liz, a lot more about this, but I've heard uh, the CEO of Hertz mention this more than once, right around the corner from my lower office, 55th Street between 6th and 7th. They're taking over a building. I was told that the juice of the grid at that city, on that city block and power a small city, you go three or four blocks to the east and it will take a half hour to 45 minutes to charge the vehicle. So the fast charging component of this is really critical. And our grid is a little fickle in, in, in New York City. I, I mean, Margaret and Liz may, you know, be able to opine more on this, but this is less of legal issues, more policy and planning and the proper expenditure taxpayer dollars, which I don't have any confidence is being spent the way I would do it if I was in charge. And Matt, I'm glad that you raised this. And I know we can talk about this forever, but it's also make planning and making sure that all of our communities, including underserved communities, are equally served and have access to the latest technologies, which is something that I know the city, the mayor, the governor, President Biden, and others are focusing on but you need the plan to be put in place that actually serves those communities at large. And I think that the city has made a priority of wanting to be of installing curbside chargers and working with probably in most cases, I think Con Ed to set up the curbside chargers in places that would otherwise be underserved if we were just relying on the private market to install the chargers. Like if you look at the city's electric vehicle plan, which I think is probably several, um, at least a couple of years old at this point, but they, their plan is that they would have a thousand of these curbside chargers set up. I think that, you know, right now they have less than 200, I think maybe Elizabeth can confirm that whether she has seen that's the case or Matt confirm whether that's the case, but. So there's still a long way to go, even for that relatively short-term goal of 1,000 by 2025. 20, like it's even more, yeah. the city's goal for these public chargers, curbside chargers, it's even more ambitious. For, by 2030, we want to have 10,000 curbside chargers. As Matt mentioned, it's important that we have these fast-charging hubs. I think there are only right now three fast-charging hubs that are run by the city, but the city really wants to have a lot more of those in the near future. And it's important that the city, in order for it to be, for there to be equitable siting, I think it's important that the city take the lead on siting those and the city-owned facilities that are located across the five boroughs. Yeah, I think it's very clear that we're not ready. I think the only thing that there's really a question about is, are we ready to get ready? Do we have the things in place that we need to be ready when the vehicles come. And they're coming fast. I think that the, that Matt raised a couple of things that I'd like to Please. circle back to. The geographic reality of where vehicles will be, especially in the truck and bus context, is really important to figure out. 
particular, and this is sort of why I started with the California model where most people are parking in their garages. When what you're looking at is individuals buying electric cars, they're kind of spread out to kind of the same places where you already have electric need, that general. And at some point, you might need to eventually upgrade electric service to a block when a whole lot of people on the same street have got EVs. But, but it's a process because there's already people there and there's already shelters there. And even if the, the load of the individual vehicle is a lot, it's a lot in the context of houses. Whereas place where a fleet charges, maybe a place where there's no electric service at all right now or very minimal electric service. A fleet, a, 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 cur- a diesel fleet could be located at the site where the electric service is to it and also in a trailer that's just there by a computer and a light bulb and not much else going on. So you can go from having that kind of need to having massive need pretty quickly. And that also raised the fact that the geography of grid can be really opaque and different from what we, the geography that we as users of the city and the land have any familiarity with. So things that are three blocks apart may seem really close to us when we're on our feet or in a vehicle. They actually may be a lot further apart in grid geography than if you want they may be served by different substations. Distances on the grid can be different and mapping the two of them together and then connecting the reality of that system and the transportation system back to sort of general numeric goal that a state might have, that a state does have along the lines of how many electric vehicles they think to have or even something more abstract like that, carbon reductions that we are requiring. Getting from those policy goals to where are the vehicles and where are they going to be charging and what does that mean for the electric system is a whole bunch of intervening steps. And then before you even involve the question of a landlord and charging on space that that you don't necessarily own and who's had the relationship with the utility company, et cetera. Yeah, and and a a bonanza for plaintiff's lawyers in terms of of all, all parties that they could be suing. And I agree with everything that you said, Liz and Margaret. And Lorraine, to your point on equity, I think one of the things that New York should be looking at, and I've been saying this over and over again to the mayor, to Chano, to everybody, that we need to do more of what they're doing in other cities around the country, smaller cities. The Federal Transit Administration came out with this thing many years ago called the Mobility on Demand Sandbox Program, which takes private forms of transit, whether it's bikes and scooters and and Ubers and Lyfts, and connects them to the transit system for the first and last mile. You know, when it comes to, well, there's a whole concept of mobility hubs, which is being promoted out there where you can go to an area, especially like an underserved community, take some property and have all your options there. But I think it's simpler than that. I think there wasn't enough money in it for MTA to apply for it. And I think their thinking is that the congestion pricing money is going to be used for building out more infrastructure for rails and and, and light rail with the IBX, right? And in, in right. Queens and Brooklyn. But all this money that's coming is going to be used for more infrastructure on moving people with things have changed post-pandemic. People are working from home. There's more traffic in the outer boroughs. And I really think that we should be taking the money, at least that comes from the YDL and taxi industry, put it in a lockbox and fund first and last mile partnerships so that nurse that's leaving the Rockaways to go to Manhattan to go to work uh, at, at the graveyard shift does not have to pay twenty, thirty, forty dollars to take an Uber, or even fifteen dollars to take the Uber from the Uber to the train. That right. should be a free ride, and it can pay for itself. And wheelchair right. accessibility is the same thing. There's a broke model we put into place years ago as an innovative issue, where you don't have to take these multi-passenger vans that waste money. 
you could take a more direct taxi or wheelchair uh, vehicle right. from point to point. We need to see more of that in New York. They're on the right track on that issue, at least. But there's a plethora of legal issues, I think, that are holding up public transit agencies from partnering. There's a report that we're, uh, I'm working on now with the Transportation Research Board National Highway Cooperative Program, which identifies all of these issues. And I, I also have another report that came out already for public transit agents that talks about emerging technology and the legal issues. Because when you start delving into it, Lorraine, you're talking about data and privacy. Who owns the data? Who can serve a freedom of information law request and get access to their competitor's information? Is it going to be protected? There's so many issues of liability, municipal uh, uh, and, and government liability, that it causes an in-house government lawyer, which I used to be, to pause and say, hey, are we covering ourselves properly? So there's a lot of legal issues floating around, and we're just scratching the surface here, but I'm hoping that the subcommittee's work and task force will really start narrowing down these issues over time and getting our experts in the field to come up with some real concrete reports and, and other podcasts and CLEs. I, 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 if possible, I'd like to flag another equity issue that I think is distinct from the ones that have been raised so far, but it's actually really closely related to, the, to some of what's been raised. Because there's the equity of mobility access, there's the equity of energy access, there's also the environmental justice, air quality issues, and the opportunity to eliminate the tailpipes of trucks that are battling the air of communities where that's a major burden is another thing that transportation electrification can do, but it's going to require, again, mapping and sort of knowing where's the pollution occurring. But literally, what specific trucks are, are causing that? Then how do you get those trucks to be electrified? It's not enough to just stick a bunch of charging in the neighborhood, That's at least for those vehicles, because there's no particular reason to think that the vehicles that are coming through are necessarily going to charge while they're there. And if you put the charging there, you could actually be attracting additional traffic without alleviating the air quality problem. Integrating the transportation and freight planning pieces of this with the electric system planning is really delicate, but really important in order to be able to clean up the air. Thank you for raising that. And I know that we've had lots of discussions about that related issue, including the congestion pricing uh, controversy within New York. So we've talked about the new products. We've talked about some of the challenges and our subcommittee can go address so many of these issues. But I'd like for you to talk about what are some of the things that you want the subcommittee to focus on initially? Because each of these topics themselves could occupy 100% of your time. Oh, Start with you, Matt. What would you like the subcommittee to prioritize? Tough choice, but my, my vote is for two issues. The first one would be looking at the liability paradigm for driverless vehicles. I mean, Almost every state that has testing and deployment laws, including New York, require anywhere from one to five million of insurance. There's maybe two states that don't uh, require it. And I, I do believe that this is an open issue. Like these are self-insured fleets now that Waymo and Cruz and others have. But Tesla is selling vehicles to the public, right? I think we really need to take a look as this technology evolves at the paradigm. I don't believe that if you look at the Uber Tempe crash case scenario and some of the crashes that we've seen, it's one step forward 
and steps, 10 steps back. And it's just a matter of time before everyone reaches the conclusion that the existing insurance paradigm and liabilities need to be clearly enunciated. If we just leave it to negligence versus products liability, I think the lawyers are going to have a field day. We're going to see stunts that are pulled where before crash investigations are done, matters are settled early on and operators and people that are really responsible left out to dry. So I actually think what the UK is doing in Europe, they have a framework now where they're putting a lot of the responsibility on, on the companies themselves, but we need like a, a framework for liability and for insurance. And the other issue is flying taxis. The flying taxis, I think we could do a lot with that. We have on the cluster committee, we have a, an aviation component. We want to work with some of these committees on that issue. And it ties into Liz and Margaret and, and the environmental committees uh, work because it's all related. It's the electric vehicles are automated. They're also flying. This is really emerging to the point where we really need to think about the laws and who's responsible when things go wrong. I mean, even the concept of doing a crash landing, what the AI and the computer has to go through in terms of scenario analysis, if God forbid you're going to the airport in a flying taxi and they have to make a crash landing, where are you going to do it? On a football field? All of these things, just like the driverless vehicles need to be mapped. And who's responsible when these things go wrong? Is it the city? Is it the private people that are putting them on their land? So these are the two issues that I vote that we, but we would li love to hear from the subcommittee members. There's a whole bunch of them that signed up. So we're hoping, Lorraine, that this podcast will kick off right. into our first meeting where we can maybe get into the weeds and get everybody's thoughts on it. But my votes are for AVs and flying taxis. That sounds great. Margaret? Yeah, I, those, both of those topics sound really interesting and important. I think I'll just mention a couple of things. I would like to hear more from members of the subcommittee who uh, work on public transit and what issues they are flagging. Because I think it's not something that I have done a lot of thinking about. And I think there are going to be, there are members of the subcommittee who will be able to add a lot of that and maybe identify issues that we as a subcommittee and the task force as the task force should be working on. And I'm going to leave it to Elizabeth to talk about the, the EV work because that's but um, I also just wanted to flag the issue of energy use. I think there has started to be, I know Sam Altman was interviewed and he was talking about the energy needs for AI. And I think that's going to be increasingly an issue as people talk about balancing those energy needs with emissions, yes. carbon emission reduction goals and mandates. And so I'll, and I'll maybe Elizabeth, if I hope that's okay that I'd want you to talk kind of about what we're interested in doing on electric no, vehicle. That's great. Yeah, I, with respect to the electric vehicle, my, my dealing with the issue I flagged about the air quality and the relationship between electrification, trucks and buses, and actually alleviating air quality burden in communities that, that are facing more than their share of air pollution for generation is actually at the top of my list. But as a, it's a subset of the bigger set of issues about needing to build out the grid to be ready for those, to actually do this transition, not just be ready for it, but the thing is the transition is coming and it's coming fast. The, I believe the electric school bus mandate requires, what is it, Margaret, is it 2027 that all new electric school or only school bus purchases have to be electric? And we've begun already scaling up requirements under the advancing truck rule for share and a growing share of other truck and bus purchases needing to be electric. So it's coming. And so being being ready and frankly being ahead of it are issues I would like to see off cover 
And the, the need to integrate this charging with the grid in the most productive way is an area that I think needs, uh, needs further thought. And, and in particular, the fact that since this is New York City, a lot of the, a lot of this charging load is going to be co-located with other kinds of building use. That's something that really hasn't been studied a lot in other places. As far as I can tell, a lot of vehicle charging has been looked at very much as a standalone bank. <laughs> And starting to think about what it means to have other energy uses at the same site as your electric vehicle charging and co-optimizing those together with the grid, I think are key issues that I hope we will be able to reach in ourselves. Well, I thank you all. I think this has been great. These are exciting times. These are exciting topics as we bring to life some of the things we saw as kids with emerging technologies and being at the forefront of making sure that we get the policy and the law and regulations right to implement this in a manner that is fair and equitable for all in our community, I think is something that the committee, subcommittee is very keen on uh, seeing. We welcome new members to our subcommittee. And if you're interested, please feel free to reach out to any one of our esteemed panelists who are our co-chairs. I want to thank our panelists for being panelists for this podcast, as well as for serving as co-chairs of our mobility subcommittee. And with that, we'll see you at our upcoming subcommittee meetings. Thank you all. Thanks, Larry. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of the New York City Bar Association podcast. Opinions expressed are those of the speakers and not necessarily of the City Bar. If you enjoyed this podcast, please like and subscribe wherever you listen. Find more City Bar podcasts on Apple, Spotify, Google, iHeart, or at our website at www.nycbar.org podcasts. Be sure to check out This Lawyer's Life, a professional development podcast where we talk with lawyers about seizing opportunities, learning lessons the hard way, and about what makes them tick. And don't miss Building Belonging, a podcast that embraces authentic conversations about DEIB solutions by amplifying the most marginalized voices in the legal industry and exploring spaces others dare not. This podcast was produced and edited by Eli Cohen.